Good morning. The last time we saw David, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan and his sins of adultery and ravishing a woman and then murder were exposed. And so the next five or six chapters that we have in the life of David, we have three scenes that we're going to look at that come right after this confrontation. I'm going to just read portions of these scenes and then speak to you about them, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. After uh, this took place, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, decided he was going to take revenge on behalf of his sister Tamar. And if you know the story, many of us do, what happens is that he lays a trap for Amnon, and Amnon falls into it, and Amnon is murdered And David finds out about this, and he sends Absalom because he killed Amnon, or had Amnon killed. He sends Absalom into exile. But slowly and surely, the allies of Absalom come to David and say, you know, you ought to bring Absalom back. He's sorry for what he did. And so David says, okay, Absalom can come back, but I don't want to see him. I don't want him in this palace. He needs to stay on the periphery. And so Absalom is on the periphery, and he hatches a plan. Back to our reading. In the course of time... Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, 
and I would see that they received justice. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And Absalom has himself crowned the new king. And as we read in Psalm 3 this morning, David is on the run. He has to run because Absalom has a coup d'etat against David, and he is powerful, and so he runs away. But there are allies that come to David, and they say, you know, I think that we can, I think we can take on Absalom and his crew. And David says, okay, let's do that, but but I love Absalom. So in fighting against him, be careful that you don't harm Absalom because I love him so much. So we go back to our reading. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Well, they're not going to listen to David. They're going to find Absalom, and they're going to kill Absalom. And then we read what happens to David when he hears the news of what happens to his beloved son Absalom. The king asked the Cushite who came to give news about the battle, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man, which means he is dead as a dog. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son My son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We may not see it at first, but these three incidents are related, and they're actually my story and your story. All three main characters that we're looking at, Amnon, Absalom, and David, are saying one thing, if only, if only. It is our if onlys that carry us through much of our lives. It's the first human narrative given to us in Scripture. If only I could be like God, Eve says. If only you hadn't given me this woman, as Adam says. Brad has carefully described David's life in these past months, but as we come to the end of his story, he actually resembles a tragic hero more than a conquering king. David. In the New Testament, one might say that the person that most resembled David was actually the Apostle John because he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the one, that, one disciple that stayed with Jesus even at the cross while all the others ran away. And in the Old Testament, David is similarly described as 
a man after God's own heart. But now this shepherd king, this slayer of giants, is a ghost of the man of who he was. I think that there's hardly anything more encouraging to watch as a Christian than watching godly men and women grow old, and as they grow old, to grow in grace and humility and faith. At the same time, it's hard to watch someone who was a devout Christian. As they get old, they become bitter and angry. David's life does not end well. These three tragedies come upon David because they are a consequence of his sin, of exploiting a young woman and then killing her husband. And while he was forgiven, as Pastor Brad said last Sunday, the consequences remained. Many of us who are forgiven today, we live with the consequences of what we've done, our past mistakes. I liken it to a nail in a post. You can nail a, put a nail in a post and you can take that nail out, but the hole is still there. But I'd like you to remember two things with regard to consequences of our sins. First of all, we are actually commanded not to dwell on our past errors. Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing forward to what God has called me to be in Christ. Do you know that the Apostle Paul would have been absolutely paralyzed if he would have spent his time thinking back to, I spent time persecuting and killing Christians. And so he tells the churches and the church at Philippi in particular, I have to forget what has gone on in the past. When we spend time thinking about our sordid past, we are often saying, you know, I don't know if I'm really forgiven. God has forgiven us. And then second of all, we're not the agents of God's consequences. I want to say that again. We are not the agents of God's consequences. That is to say, we must remember 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think this is particularly true with regard to our friendships, marriages, and other family relationships. How often have we thought, well, I'm going to freeze you out so that you will feel the consequences of what you've done to me. Rather than looking at Ephesians chapter 4, which says, in Christ forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. So let's briefly look at these three what-ifs. And they all begin with R. I did that so it'll help us remember them. And then close with just some brief application. In the wretched first story of Amnon, the first what-if is relationships. If only I had this one relationship. There's this gaping hole in my life. And if I could just have Tamar, everything would be fixed. Maybe we thought about that the day that we got married. Now this hole in my life will be fixed. There's an old song by Frankie Valley called My Eyes Adored You. Some of you may know that song. Though I never laid a hand on you, my eyes adored you. It's the story of a young boy and young girl growing up together, and he carried her books home from school, and so on and so on. Do you know that Amnon and Tamar grew up together? And as they grew, Tamar's extravagant grace and beauty captured Amnon. 
And he, was, he became so convinced that this is the missing piece in my life. He doesn't even care what anyone else thinks, not even what Tamar thinks. His what if for Tamar makes him a raging animal who will destroy his half-sister. And we find that he gets what he wants. And it doesn't satisfy. In fact, it does just the opposite. He actually hates her more than he loved her. There are millions and millions of books and songs and poems and movies that rehearse this truth. This is a story of our lives. Just the one that comes to my mind, I've mentioned this before, is that classic novel by the Russian Leo Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. If you know the story of Anna Karenina, she is a beautiful married woman with a young son who falls for the handsome Count Alexei Vronsky, who also falls madly in love with Anna. And she abandons her husband and her son, and uh, they go over to Italy, and after about 600 pages of the novel, Vronsky comes to this conclusion. Tolstoy writing here. He soon felt, this is Vronsky, he soon felt the fulfillment of his desires for Anna only gave him a grain of the mountain of happiness he had expected. The unfulfilled longing showed him the eternal error men make in imagining that their happiness depends on the fulfillment of their desires. It's just not men that make this error. As you continue reading, Anna has quite a tragic end herself. The what if of a fulfilling relationship leaves us empty if that is our ultimate hope. Whether it's your children your spouses, if that is where you're putting your eggs all in that basket, read the story of Amnon. And then the second one, we come to the second what if. Perhaps you say, well, I'm not one of those persons, I'm kind of uh, old and uh, just, I'm not waiting around for anyone to fulfill me anymore, I'm smarter than that, I've played that game. So now we come to Absalom, and what is his what if? Absalom sits at the city gate and says, if only I were the judge of this land. The second what if is recognition. If only people would recognize how good I am. If they would only recognize that I would be a better king than my father. If Amnon was consumed with lust, Absalom was driven by pride and selfish ambition. And you know, whether it's subtle or overt, we often seek recognition and power, even if it is for people to feel sorry for us. We want to be noticed. If only people would see how blank I am. You fill in the blank. If only people would see how If only they would recognize. And what would we do with that recognition? Well, we'll turn it into power. In short, we'll get our way. Isaiah 53 is the chapter in the Old Testament that talks about how a Messiah is going to be sent and he's going to be taking on the sins of the whole world. But when Isaiah writes about how he is going to be pierced for us, and how he's going to be nailed to a cross for us. 
the one sin that it says he's going to be killed for is not murder, is not adultery, it's this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've all sought our own recognition in different ways to make it my life. I want to run my universe the right way. And if people could just recognize who I am, they would let me do that. Oh, if only I were the king. Well, I don't want to be king or queen of the world. But how about king or queen of your relationships? How about having power in your relationships? How about at work? How about at home? Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, a mother came to Jesus, and she had a couple of disciples that were following Jesus. And she said, uh, I want to ask you a favor. Many of us know this story. And she said, I want my sons to be your number one and number two advisor. I want them to be your top advisors, number one and number two. Yeah, I was thinking, boy, she was thinking about her chicks before they hatched because um, Jesus wasn't having a real huge following, but she wanted her sons to be number one and number two. And then the disciples start fighting with each other about who's going to be recognized. And do you remember what Jesus said? You know what the, that the rulers of the Gentiles love to show power over the people, but it should not be that way among you. Whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. Whoever wants recognition must be the servant. And then we come to the final what if. David makes a request after the rebellion of Absalom. Please, please take care of Absalom. Absalom dies. And what does David say? What is the third R? The third R is regret. If only I had died instead of you. If only. In short, if only I'd been a better father. If only I'd have been a better father. How many of us who are mothers and fathers or even just young people spend our time looking back at regrets? I could have done a better job. Why in the world did I do that? What was I thinking? I wonder if some of us are thinking about that this morning, about this past week. Why in the world did I say that? Why do I, did I do that? David had a lot of excuses he could draw upon. Well, I couldn't really spend time with my kids. You know, I was busy fighting wars and I was busy being a king. I didn't really have time. And what type of example did I have? I had a father who didn't even think about me when it came time to who was going to be the next king of Israel. He just forgot about me altogether. Good old Jesse. Samuel comes and says, don't you have another son? No, I really don't have another son. So I had a bad example as a father. But at the end of the day, David lost his children And he has this regret, if only I had died instead of you. So I'd like to close with just a couple of thoughts on where I think we might be in America right now with regard to these three R's, relationship, recognition, and regret. There's a growing malaise in our culture. The American gospel that you you should follow your own heart and 
that a fulfilled life is one where you remain in control and only listen to yourself, I need to tell you that that's actually starting to go out of style with Generation Z. It's being played out, and it has been played out with tragic results. I know I mentioned several weeks ago that America stands as the number one nation in the world leading in the category of anxiety. Number one in the world in depression, number one in opioid addiction. Teenage suicides are up 300% in some categories. I see this confusion daily at the university. It is clear that our heart's infinite hunger cannot be filled by anything finite. Thomas Wolfe puts it this way. Imagine you've been flailing and flailing and expecting to drown and your foot hits bottom. I truly believe that's what's happening in our culture. I see it every day. It's not living for myself. That hasn't gotten me very far. It sure hasn't gotten my parents very far. They're drowning in the hope of a happily ever after relationship. I haven't seen it yet. In recognition and professional success and and regrets. We cannot seem to get out of our souls either our urge for a loving father. In a new book, which we highly recommend by James K. Smith, On the Road with St. Augustine, there's a final chapter in that book on Augustine's relationship with his father, Patrick. But before going into that, Smith writes, Late capitalism is the age where everyone has a computer in their pocket and a gaping hole where a father should be. Paul Oster, who's a noted novelist and filmmaker, notes in his memoir, you do not stop stop hungering for your father's love even after you have grown up. Oster tells a story of his family going out on a Sunday and they go to a restaurant and it's full and so they're put on a wait list. And so his father says to him, let's go out and let's put a penny on the ground and bounce a ball to each other and see who can come closest to hitting the penny. And as he remembers this as an old man, Oster wrote, in retrospect, nothing could have been more trivial And yet the fact that I had been included, that my father had casually asked me to share his boredom with him, nearly crushed me with happiness. On writing about poor father, Smith knows what he's talking about. His biological father walked out the door one day. He's never seen him since. His stepfather was there for a little while, walked out the door. He's never seen him since. He doesn't know where either of his fathers are. Augustine actually had the opposite problem. Augustine had a helicopter father, Patrick. He wanted to make sure that Augustine would go to the right school. He wanted to make sure that Augustine would have economic success. Let's get him in the right school at Carthage. And then he makes it to Rome and then Milan. And all that Patrick wanted was Augustine to have professional success. And he said, I don't even mind if you go to the brothels. In fact, if you want some money, I'll give you. I don't care what you do. I just want you to do well and get into the right schools. And I want you to get good grades. And so he made it. 
And if you know the story of Augustine, he actually makes it to Rome. And when he goes to Rome, they say, this isn't where it's at. If you want to really know where it's at, where people are thinking and the rhetoric is really great, it's a place called Milan. And so he goes to Milan. And he becomes like the number one rhetorician in Milan. And his friends come to him. They say, man, you're a bad dude. You're, you are good. But we've actually found somebody who's a little bit better than you. I know it's hard to believe that somebody is better than you, but um, we've found somebody. And Augustine says, well, I'll go listen to this guy. And Augustine writes in his confession, Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, that man of God took me up as a father, takes a newborn baby in his arms, And in the best tradition of bishops, he prized me as a foreign sojourner. It was the bishop of Milan, Ambrose, where Augustine found a father that he never had. But I like how Smith ends the book by saying this. And he's talking about himself now. He says, there are wounds and scars from the two fathers who have left me. But they have healed because of the fathers I found in the body of Christ who chose me without obligation, loved me without reservation, and were present when others were absent. And this is why we're here this morning. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to worship God and to be brothers and sisters to each other, to be mothers and fathers to each other, to be grandparents, to be a grandfather and a grandmother to each other. That's why we're here. And the best that we can do is to love our children in our community and to point them to someone greater than ourselves. Finally, of this entire story, the one thing that stands out to me with regard to Absalom and David is the story that was told a thousand years later by an itinerant rabbi that has echoes of this story. The prodigal son, he left home just like Absalom left home. The prodigal son, he came back just like Absalom came back. But what's the difference The difference is David said, yeah, Absalom, you can come, but I don't want to see you. You stay at the periphery. But when the prodigal son comes home, I wonder if his mother says to him, he walked down the road every day. He kept looking for you. He's on the porch hoping that a distant figure would show up. He doesn't keep him at arm's length. He runs and he embraces him and he kisses him. He won't even let the son fully apologize before he says, bring quickly the best robes and put it on him. And let's put a ring on his finger. Let's put sandals on his feet. And let's get the fatted calf and kill it because we need to celebrate There's also a very large difference in how the fathers respond to the death of their sons. 
David insists, make sure that Absalom is okay. That's the main thing. But how about Jesus' father? On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion for the sins of the world, he told his disciples, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say to my father? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that my father sent me here. He sent me to die. Our story is the story of a man who at the prime of his life was put on a cross, who came for us, gave himself for us, and died for us. He has shown mercy to many of us who live with these three R's. For those of us who thought that He was going to make me happy. She was going to make me happy. That child was going to make me happy. We say our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, no matter how beautiful that frame is, but we wholly lean on Jesus' name because it's on Christ the solid rock we stand. And all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And when we are tempted with recognition and want to be noticed, we sing that Irish hymn, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou our inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in our heart. High King of heaven, Our treasure thou art. But I think I'm mainly speaking perhaps today to people with regrets. Our Absalom, O Absalom. What is your Absalom, O Absalom? Well, if that is that, where we're at this morning, we say with the great English slave trader, who God saved and made him somebody who tried to get rid of slavery through many dangers, toils, and snares. We've already come. It's grace that has brought us safe thus far. And it's grace, not regrets, that will lead us home. Amen. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you didn't shout out or didn't tell the Roman guards, make sure you don't hurt my son. We thank you that your son came to earth and knew that he was going to take on our sins so that we could have an abundant life, so that we could be one with you. Get rid of our if-onlys today. Give us grace to have our hope and trust in you and you alone, even as we come to the table this morning.
In Jesus' name, amen.